This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Peter Stein, a managing director at Lime Timber in Hanover, New Hampshire, located where I live and work as well. In addition to his current work, a big part of the reason why I wanted to talk to Peter is his long history of work in the land conservation movement. Peter was one of the founding staff of the Trust for Public Land, eventually becoming a senior vice president at that organization. We discuss the history of the land trust movement and the challenging but still evolving relationship it has sometimes had with issues of equity and community rights. Later in our discussion, we talked about Peter's role at Lime Timber, which is what is known as a Timber Investment Management Organization, or TIMO. Peter described how his move to Lime Timber occurred at a fortunate time, given several important transitions that were occurring, and we talk about two of these transitions in depth. Firstly, there was a large divestment of paper product companies of their forest assets, creating organizations like Lime Timber. And secondly, the resulting organizations have increasingly been using what are known as conservation easements, which constrain the development rights on a piece of land in exchange for some type of subsidy. And we discuss a particular type of conservation easement that Peter has been implementing, known as a working forest conservation easement. We finish our conversation by discussing the role that carbon markets and specifically carbon offsets are playing in the forest sector. Carbon offsets are a kind of payment for ecosystem services scheme that are often integrated into the regulatory regime of a carbon market. But more recently, the voluntary carbon market space is growing rapidly and is placed to have a large impact on how many people manage their forests. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter Stein. Well, so Peter, I've been, it's, it's kind of funny to start this conversation with you because we've been talking for, I don't know, I kind of, I think I reached out to you a little under a year ago, something like that. The pandemic has still warped my sense of time, but we've gone for walks around Occam Pond in Hanover, which has been a really nice way to just have these informal chats about lots of different issues that we're going to talk about today. And You've been helpful to engage with some of my students at Dartmouth, which I really appreciate. So I'm just particularly excited to kind of get some of this wisdom you've been sharing with me on the record and uh, share it with a broader audience of listeners who I think are going to be really excited to hear what you have to say about a range of topics. To start things off, as I always do on these interviews, Peter, could you tell a bit of your origin story? I know some of it, but again, I think our listeners will enjoy hearing about how you got to where you are. We're going to unpack some of the specific hats you've worn because you've worn a bunch of different interesting hats during your career. But could you talk to me about when you make sense of your involvement in the environmental conservation space writ large, what are the important experiences and decisions that stick out to you in leading you in that direction? Great question. Uh, I think luck has a lot to do with it or personal luck. Uh, so I, I actually participated, I think I was a senior in high school in the very first Earth Day uh, at, in Central Park in New York City, <laughs> so that was 1970, um, and that began to sort of direct both my values and my career. Um, so I was lucky enough to uh, go to University of California at Santa Cruz when it was a tiny little experimental place. and you know, a giant class was like 10 students with a professor or 12 students with a professor. And uh, one of those professors uh, introduced me to the founder of a group called the Trust for Public Land. And 
while I was planning on going to graduate school and, and did go uh, for a semester, uh, I was intrigued with land conservation, land trusts, uh, taking private land and putting it into public ownership. And that's what the Trust for Public Land was all about. And uh, I'd had some other experiences in sort of the social justice world. Uh, while I was in college, I did an internship at something called the Suburban Action Institute, which did uh, exclusionary zoning litigation. So it would uh, uh, attempt to uh, support the siting of affordable housing in wealthy suburbs. Uh, needless to say, most of those wealthy suburbs were not interested in seeing that happen. So I saw uh, one side of the environmental movement that was, uh, we'll politely say, regressive, if not racist, uh, which was uh, land conservation could be used for something that wasn't so good, in my perspective, which was denying the siting of low-income housing by conserving the land, uh, taking it out of the marketplace where uh, affordable housing could be constructed. Um, so in some ways, those experiences and perspectives balanced each other. I was an environmentalist, but I also didn't want uh, the tools, techniques, policies, regulations, uh, capacity of the environmental movement uh, to do things that were gonna harm people and communities. So I uh, very much gravitated to this first job at the Trust for Public Land because I could spend my mornings uh, or a portion of my week uh, buying, uh, acquiring uh, these beautiful ranches on the coast of, of Marin County, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge to become uh, a new national park, Golden Gate National Recreation Area. And I would spend other parts of my week in, in East Oakland buying vacant lots from savings and loans who had redlined those communities. Uh, and there was just a lot of vacant housing, a lot of vacant lots uh, because nobody could get a mortgage to rebuild or acquire them. And those were turned into uh, community gardens and mini parks. Uh, so it was delivering uh, access to nature, access to fresh food in the form of community gardens to uh, the kind of community that candidly probably wasn't going to be traveling to Western Marine to go walk on the beaches that were part of those beautiful ranches. Uh, so uh, I spent the next 14 years, 15 years working at the Trust for Public Land as the token New Yorker in what was then the only office in San Francisco. I was sent east because they figured I could ride the subways or I wouldn't get lost. Uh, and I uh, got to work in places like Newark, the South Bronx, South side of Chicago, East side of Cleveland, doing urban land conservation work, which was pretty pioneering. We created the first urban land trust, so modeled after, believe it or not, the oldest land trust in America, trustees of reservations in Massachusetts. That became the mechanism for community groups to actually control the destiny or the future of these properties that their sweat equity, their labor, their time and effort was, were being used to convert to community gardens or uh, neighborhood parks. Um, so let me stop there. Yeah, that's great, Peter. I'd love to ask you some follow-up questions about some of the specific terms we're already using for the audience. Can you tell me like, what most basically is a land trust? Why is it called uh, a trust? 
so a land trust is uh, typically a, uh, a nonprofit organization. So it has to get uh, uh, registered with a state department of corporations. And typically it also becomes a public charity. So it has to uh, receive uh, tax exempt status from the Internal Revenue Service. So the Internal Revenue Service uh, is going to uh, provide their status as a public charity so that donations of land or donations of money or appreciated stock or anything uh, would be deductible by the donor as a way to support these organizations. Um, but the trust word really comes from their obligation to hold land or property rights like conservation easements in trust for the public. And that's why the word trust is in their name. Uh, it's uh, candidly, it was a little challenging in the early days because some state banking regulations reserved the word trust for banks. So when we created, took, took some legislative changes in New Jersey, but the first land trusts in New Jersey couldn't use that term uh, till the legislation changed and recognized other reasons to use the word trust in the name of corporations. Uh, but now there are about 1,600 conservation land trusts uh, throughout the United States. Uh, two thirds of them are east of the 100th meridian, the eastern half of the United States, one third in the western half. And in the uh, first 10 or 15 years of the existence of the Trust for Public Land, one of its missions, one of its activities was to help create land trusts. So I was lucky enough to work on the creation of about 150 land trusts around the country, uh, all you know, independent organizations, but the technical work to create them, building their board, doing their training uh, was provided by the Trust for Public Land. That got supplanted by a group called the Land Trust Alliance, which I was a co-founder of in the early 1980s. And that's the kind of trade association, back office support network for conservation land trusts in the U.S. right now. I mean, so an organization that I think a lot of people know about is the Nature Conservancy. And my understanding is that a large part of their model is effectively acting as a land trust. Is that correct, the way you're describing yeah, it? Yeah, no, very much so. They, uh, it was uh, a group of uh, scientists uh, that were uh, leaders of the Ecological Society of America in the 50s that created the Nature Conservancy because they saw a need for an organization that would focus on uh, natural habitats, the preservation of natural habitats. So there are nature conservancy preserves all, all throughout this country and many countries around the globe where the Nature Conservancy actually owns the land. Uh, but more frequently these days, the Nature Conservancy is facilitating the transfer of property to a public agency like a national park or national forest or things like that. So these organizations, and in particular, the Land Trust Alliance, how much of a coordinating role does it play between different land trusts? Does it help people provide, like, is there kind of a sharing of learnings across different organizations? Um, how is it trying to coordinate these different activities and facilitate? Is there any kind of relationship building among organizations that it facilitates? Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, the impetus for 
the creation, its first name, early name was Land Trust Exchange, uh, but now known as Land Trust Alliance, was actually coordination around federal policy work. Um, the uh, Internal Revenue Service was beginning to develop the laws and regulations associated with, along with Congress, uh, the deductibility of conservation easements. Uh, and what would that look like? And uh, literally one of the reasons that this group came into being was not too many land trusts had uh, lawyers or policy experts on staff that could deal with federal agencies. So collectively, they were a, a stronger force than individual land trusts trying to figure this out on their own. So the first impetus for the creation of the Land Trust Alliance was that federal policy work, and that continues to be a, a very important. So, you know, they're giant land trusts like the Big Sur Land Trust or uh, Peninsula Open Space Trust, both in California or Maine Coast Heritage Trust, Maine or Vermont Land Trust. Some of those big land trusts probably can do a lot of that federal policy work on their own. But there are, out of that 1,600, there's still 500 all-volunteer land trusts. They don't have professional staff. So it's volunteer board members who are doing the work, volunteers associated with those land trusts. So the idea that uh, there was sort of one-stop shopping uh, for federal policy work was a benefit to the entire community uh, of land trusts. Uh, the other area where they collaborate is uh, standards and practices, which has now evolved into something called the Land Trust Accreditation Commission. There have been some, there still are some bad behaviors by land trusts. Uh, the most uh, recent set of bad behaviors has to do with syndication of conservation easement transactions, uh, which uh, there's been a lot of, of media coverage of this and there's uh, recently passed federal legislation that uh, dramatically increases the penalties by the IRS for such transactions. But um, the idea is could the community of land trusts kind of uh, self-monitor best practices. So standards and practices were developed in the late 80s, early 90s, and in uh, the early 2000s, they became the criteria for self-accreditation by the Land Trust Accreditation Commission as a way of maintaining best practices across all land trusts. And so you mentioned earlier, Peter, the issue of the relationship between conservation and, well, I want to say exclusion. There's this concern that in my field, we sometimes call it fortress conservation, which is a criticism of kind of exclusionary conservation, particularly when it's uh, implemented in some kind of like protected area. You mentioned the concerns about exclusionary zoning and redlining. To get us to where I want to go, could you, because I think some listeners won't They'll kind of hear the term redlining, but might not exactly know what you're talking about. Could you say a little bit more about that to get us into that topic? Sure. Um, for a variety of reasons best understood by the, the banks, uh, they would designate uh, communities or portions of communities as unacceptable places to make loans. Uh, and unfortunately, these tended to be black and brown communities. Uh, who were economically challenged or distressed. Um, and, and there were two results to that. One is um, 
you know, one of the most significant ways to create uh, personal wealth, family wealth uh, in the United States of America is, is buying and owning a home. So that op option or opportunity was foreclosed uh, in those communities. And second, uh, because there might have been housing there, but it couldn't be refinanced when it was sold because of redlining and the denial of mortgages in those communities, those houses deteriorated. Uh, so if you think about 6,000 vacant acres in Detroit, all 6,000 of what is now currently vacant acres in Detroit had mostly single family and duplex houses on them. You know, part of it was due to white flight from that city, but also part of it was due to redlining by uh, banking institutions that would no longer lend in those neighborhoods. So that's what redlining is. Okay. And so, Peter, could you talk to me about how much of a concern do you think there should still be about exclusionary conservation and how much do you think it's being addressed, say, through another topic that we've talked about, community trusts and this this evolving relationship between land trusts and community trusts? Do you think it's still an important concern where there's some real problems and how much do you think those problems are being addressed? Um, I still think it's a very important concern. I'm super pleased that there's been progress um, through quite a bit of leadership by the Land Trust Alliance on what uh, they call community-centered conservation. Um, so even though these are private nonprofits, they really should be doing things that are in the public interest. And there's been a, a pretty strong policy and educational effort by the Land Trust Alliance to make sure the work of land trusts are accessible to all communities in America. Uh, and if you think about, you know, the last three plus years of COVID and nature access uh, and the need uh, to recreate, uh, I think, it, you know, there are a lot of, of rural communities, urban communities that are underserved with respect to open space. And I see that as a giant opportunity for the land trust movement with public agency partners to address and I think finally, there's comfort and readiness by the conservation land trust movement to do that. Um, Michael, you alluded to uh, community land trusts, which began in the late 1960s, although there's potentially an example of one that goes back all the way to the 1930s. Um, these are another vehicle for collaborative, collective ownership of land. Um, most of their work has been focused actually on uh, low income and affordable housing. Uh, their mechanism is to essentially take the land out of the speculative market by placing the land in trust and having the improvements uh, controlled through ground leases uh, to families who will live in those improved housing structures. But community land trusts have done some community forests in the Southeast, they've done urban farms, they've done community gardens. And there, uh, I was part of an effort that began about two years ago to begin to share more uh, information, tactics, strategies between conservation land trusts and community land trusts. And quite candidly, I tried to do that about 35 years ago and there was not a lot of interest uh, from the conservation land trust uh, world. Uh, so, um, 
Now, now there is, and there's actually a great publication that the Land Trust Alliance just did, believe it or not, on affordable housing, uh, which we can get to you. Uh, and there is a workshop at this year's uh, Land Trust Alliance National Conference on this topic as well. Um, so, Peter, can we transition now to your current position at Lime Timber? Can you describe the organization and, and the work you do for it? Uh, so in uh, early 1990s, a uh, young family living in New York City, both uh, myself and my wife were working for the Trust for Public Land. Um, and we decided that we didn't want to live in New York City anymore. We're pretty excited about staying with the Trust for Public Land and going back to San Francisco. And the uh, founder and one of the principals of Lime Timber shows up and says, uh, you shouldn't do that. You should uh, go over the dark side, become a capitalist and join a private equity fund uh, called the Lime Timber Company. And fortunately, I was I'm married to a very smart woman who figured out that was a good idea. I was struggling and it was a good idea. Um, the time, this is where the luck that I mentioned at the very beginning of our interview comes in. This was the moment in time or the period in time when the integrated forest products companies were divesting of their timberland. This was also when the world of conservation biology and conservation planning began to think much more at a larger scale, the so-called so landscape scale. Uh, and state and federal agencies were putting money into this new property rights mechanism. It wasn't that new, but putting public money into it was new, called the conservation easement. So those three things, the divestiture, so land being available to buy at a large scale, public money that would pay for a conservation easement instead of just donating it and getting a tax benefit, income tax benefit. And third, uh, that whether it was the Nature Conservancy or Vermont Land Trust or Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation, the land trust movement, the land conservation movement wanted to work at a larger scale. And so I joined Blind Timber just when those three things were beginning to materialize. And uh, an example would be one of the, one of the first uh, transaction I worked on, I describe as uh, protecting the Appalachian Trail, sort of like a, a python swallowing an elephant. So not just the narrow trail corridor, but the adjacent forested landscape that literally was defined by sub-watershed watershed boundaries. So uh, it was important, obviously, for a hiker to make sure the trail was protected, but that same hiker got the visual and benefits of the surrounding land and the surrounding habitat and natural resources were protected as well. And Lime Timber has gone on to do literally a couple of hundred investments over the last 30 years in partnership with conservation NGOs and state and federal agencies where we buy high conservation value forest land and through a variety of mechanisms, uh, make sure it stays a forest. Sometimes that's done through working forest conservation easements. Other times it's done through the carbon markets. Sometimes it's done through both. Okay. And Peter, can we take a step back and can you talk to me a bit about the transition in the, I, I guess it's called, I would say the management regime for forest ownership in the United States and elsewhere from 
these integrated forest product companies, what people kind of loosely call paper companies to these other two models, uh, Timos and REITs? Yeah. So for a long, long time, you know, from the kind of very earliest days of the 20th century, these paper companies, integrated forest products companies owned uh, manufacturing facilities. So it might be a paper mill or a sawmill or both. They owned distribution facilities. So they were marketing the wood products uh, either directly or to wholesalers. And they owned the wood basket, the forest where the wood products came from for three reasons. <laughs> Uh, that began to change in the late 80s, early 90s. One was these were listed public companies, meaning that they were taxed at two levels. The corporation paid a tax and the shareholders, the stock owners of those corporations uh, paid a tax on any dividends that were distributed by the company. So there was some friction, uh, tax friction in that structure. The second issue was a number of corporate raiders had used the forest land as security to borrow money to take over these companies. So if you got rid of your forest land, then you uh, diminish the chances of a corporate uh, raid or uh, adverse takeover of your company. And then the third reason was the capital that was invested in timberland was earning a modest return, but with the exception of radiata pine in New Zealand or some pine species in the Southeast US, trees just don't grow that fast. So if you could take the capital that was invested in the timberland and put it into your manufacturing facilities, and a fair amount of this was offshore manufacturing. So there was a movement of manufacturing to South America, uh, to Southeast Asia, places like that you could get a better return on those investment dollars. So those were the reasons that this occurred. Um, and the other reason that I think it was deemed to be strategic for the companies is they never owned 100% of their wood baskets. So if you were procuring fiber or timber for a mill, you weren't just getting it from the land that was owned by that specific paper company, but you were getting it from third-party owners as well. Okay. Do we see these developments as a good thing for people in the forests or is it bad or is it more complicated? How does it, how do we think about the incentive structures of these new owners and how those incentives lead them to manage forests? So I'm, a, I'm probably a little biased on this one, but uh, so the, the next iteration or, or generation of owners are what you refer to correctly, Michael, the publicly traded, uh, timber real estate investment trusts. So that would, an example would be like Potlatch Deltic or uh, Weyerhaeuser uh, and the TMOs, Timber Investment Management Organizations is what that acronym stands for. And Lime Timber would be an example and is actually one of the oldest of the Timberland Investment Management Organizations, but there are 20 other ones uh, around the globe. You know, from the fact that that there really is no other resource other than the trees, other than the forest, uh, good behavior, meaning sustainable forest management is somewhat critical to those businesses because they're not gonna make money anywhere else. Um, 
at the same time, the some of the community benefits of integrated ownership have disappeared. Uh, so obviously, uh, the employment in the local mill is no longer connected to the forest because somebody else owns the mill. Uh, so some, I would say some of the community relations have either been strained or just separated in a way that probably hasn't been as good for the rural communities where the integrated companies were, had manufacturing facilities and a forest in the same ownership. Uh, at the same time, this is where I'm biased, uh, by having large forests, uh, there, the scale of conservation has dramatically, large forest ownership, the scale of conservation has dramatically changed. And it's not just lime timber, Plum Creek, which was five years ago absorbed by a warehouser, but it's one of those public timber REITs, has done you know, a million acres of conservation transactions out of its land base. Potlatch just did a significant one in Alabama. Um, so more and more of these companies are uh, on a willing seller basis participating in conservation transactions. And the paper companies were not known to have done that to any great, great extent in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Okay. If you were going to, I mean, in some ways, the context for my question leads to maybe one answer or another, right? Because we're comparing the current model to the previous one. And so we could, maybe it compares favorably, but if you were still going to make changes to it to further improve it or to just challenges it has, what do you think you would do? Well, there are a couple of things, and we've certainly done a few of these, but I'm enamored with the concept of community forests, which is a very old idea. It was created when England ruled the United States, uh, sometimes known as town forests. Uh, in the Midwest, they're known as county forests. Uh, but these are land that still is in forest management, um, typically good forest management, but directly owned and accountable to local communities. And I think, again, this divestiture from the paper companies and no longer having a town that had a mill and maybe some of the school board members or uh, county commissioners or town select board members were employees. And those kinds of connections have disappeared. And I see the community forest model as recreating some of those connections. I also see the community land trust model using being one of the mechanisms uh, for a community forest as well as a conservation land trust model, as well as direct ownership by local government. Okay. I mean, so I'm kind of hearing the need for more local participation and involvement yeah. in management. Yeah. Okay. Can we return to this topic of conservation easements? And I think the, the technical idea that we're talking about are working forest conservation easements. Can you unpack how those work in a bit more depth for us? Sure. Um, so conservation easements are taking uh, some of the property rights and putting them into a separate legal agreement uh, and transferring that to a qualified uh, recipient, grantee. Um, so what a conservation easement uh, is is a way to essentially have a perpetual marriage <laughs> between a private landowner and either a uh, 
nonprofit organization like a land trust or a unit of state, local or federal government. Uh, and so while we didn't do the very first conservation easements, Lime Timber was involved in some of the earliest ones and some of the largest scale uh, working forest conservation easements. And that's really the, the new nuance. So conservation easements have existed in the United States since the 1930s. The first use of conservation easements were to protect the uh, adjacent lands uh, to the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, and it was really a visual benefit that the National Park Service was trying to achieve that there wouldn't be sort of ad hoc development that would uh, would would kind of uh, impact negatively impact the visual experience of being on that parkway. Uh, they were then used uh, in a pretty cool way for protecting farmlands starting in the late 1960s in uh, Eastern Long Island and Montgomery County, Maryland. And that's really where the working term began to develop. So easements up until uh, the use for agricultural land protection or forest land protection were mostly forever wild, meaning that the land would not be used for economic productivity uh, other than recreation. Uh, so um, the first working forest conservation easements were done by the Society for Protection of New Hampshire Forests in the 70s, uh, but they were modest in scale. They were all donated easements. There wasn't any public money available to purchase them. And uh, another part of my personal story and luck was I got to work on the 1990 Farm Bill, uh, uh, Federal Farm Bill, which supports um, various parts of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And one of the elements of that Farm Bill was something called the Forest Legacy Program, which is the first federal expenditure, federal appropriation for the purchase of working forest conservation easements. Um, and we did the very first one of those projects in New Hampshire in uh, the early 90s that protects the land not too far away from you, Michael, uh, in and around Smarts Mountain in Lyme, mm. New Hampshire. So uh, working forest conservation easements allow the forest to be productive for timber practices. So continues sustainable management of the forest, but yields income to the landowner but also precludes uh, the development the uh, development of non-forest uses on that property. It can't be turned into a subdivision. The forest can't be changed to agriculture. Um, typically there is some degree of public recreational access uh, secured through this conservation easement as well. And the actual forest management is either prescribed in the easement, being defined in the easement, or there's a mechanism. Uh, what we tend to do, and I think it's become more common practice, is the easement requires third-party certification of the forest practices by groups like um, the Forest Stewardship Council or the Sustainable Forest Initiative. Peter, you mentioned this forest uh, legacy program Although my understanding is that a lot of this is driven by state policy, because someone could enroll or set up a forest a, a conservation easement purely for intrinsic reasons that they want to promote conservation. That that's feasible, right? But then there's yeah, this sure. other idea that they might do it because they want a tax break or extra income, and as you like, that income needs to come from somewhere, and that would be some kind of public program or policy. Is that all correct? 
Yeah, so the Forest Legacy Program is a grant program, meaning the money goes to state agencies. And it's a competitive process, so the states uh, usually have some kind of committee that receives applications at the state level. Uh, they rank those. It then goes to the regional uh, offices of the U.S. Forest Service. They rank those and eventually goes to the national office and they rank those. Okay. So in thinking about your work with Lime Timber, do you all, how important is it for you to be working in, say, a state or an area where there are supportive policies and programs that can support conservation easement contracts? Very, 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 very important. Did I have enough various in there? Almost, uh, yep. Almost, good. So, uh, yeah. So we're looking for states that uh, have uh, a program where, where the conservation easement idea is not brand new, <laughs> where they've done it before. Uh, this is a federal grant that requires a matching amount of money. So up to 75% of the cost of the conservation easement can be paid for with the federal money. But the other 25% has to come from somewhere else. Uh, it could be a discount in the purchase price by the landowner. Uh, it could be state money. It could be philanthropy. It could be local government money, like uh, money that might be appropriated at a town meeting in New Hampshire or things like that. Uh, so we're looking for a state that has money uh, to be a match. We're looking for the forest to have the attributes that it is going to score high in the rating system. So if you looked at Lime Timber's ownership, uh, most, just about every single forest investment we've made, almost, uh, adjoins existing conservation land. So it might be a neighbor to a national park, might be a neighbor to a national wildlife refuge, to a state park, to a state wildlife management area, uh, because most of those things have straight lines. And if you think about climate change, you think about wildlife habitat and wildlife migration and connectivity corridors, and flood events, um, and everything else that's going on on the face of the earth, I'm pretty sure nothing happens in straight lines. Um, and so a lot of our Forests are essentially the insulators uh, or the adjoining lands to exist the existing conservation landscape uh, in the U.S. Okay, and Peter, from just out of my curiosity, what proportion of your own time and effort is dedicated to conservation easement work at Lime Timber? Uh, probably about a third of my time. So, you know, my job is to follow the policies. Uh, you know, really good news in the Inflation Reduction Act, an extra $700 million was included. Uh, perhaps that was only a rounding error in the Inflation Reduction Act, but still a lot of money from my perspective. So what used to be, uh, uh, so the Forest Legacy Program used to be 60 or $70 million a year. The Land and Water Conservation Fund it was the source for that federal money. That fund uh, basically doubled uh, a couple of years ago, so it went to maybe $120 million. And for the next uh, next 10 years, there'll be another $70, $75 million a year uh, of forest legacy money. Uh, so that's good news. Uh, and if uh, we could probably put it in the resources, there's actually three new themes for that IRA-specific forest legacy money that your listeners might want to learn about. Peter, what do you think are some 
weaknesses or common challenges that the conservation the working conservation easement approach faces? Uh, there's still some pushback from what I would call the far left end of the environmental movement, the, the pro-forestation movement that no trees should be cut whatsoever. Uh, so there's that issue. Uh, at the other end of the political spectrum, uh, having government involvement in private land is not always viewed positively in every state uh, or in certain counties in certain states. So we've seen some pushback. We own a, a fair amount of land uh, that essentially is the connector between the Allegheny National Forest on the west. So this is in north central Pennsylvania and a significant amount of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania wildlife management areas on the east and the land we own is literally the connector pieces or a lot of the connection and uh, the four counties that we own land are pretty opposed to conservation easements um, so we're hoping that we can change their minds over time but it's it's going very slowly okay so Peter I've I'm trying to get a picture of like an, a, a stereotypical parcel of land that lime timber owns. So some of it is going to be dedicated to the kind of conservation easement zones where lime gives up some of its, uh, say, development rights in return for some entitlement to uh, financial benefit. Are there other actors who are say, on that parcel, using it for other reasons? Are there other private actors that are on the landscape? How does that look? Yeah, so uh, maybe a good example is the land uh, that Lime Timber acquired from the International Paper Company. They were divesting of their timberland through the 90s and into the early 2000s. So in 2005, we acquired about um, 250,000 acres of their land in the Adirondacks, so in northern New York State. Um, all of that land is subject to a working forest conservation easement held by the Department of Environmental Conservation of the state of New York. They used Environmental Bond Act money, so the citizens of the state of New York uh, tax themselves uh, to pay for that. Um, the land is in sort of two categories. A uh, little more than half of the land has unfettered public recreation access. So there are hunters during hunting season and people going fishing and walking and major mountain bike, multi-day mountain bike rides, things like that on about 60% of the land. 40% of the land, uh, because it was the historical use, is still leased to hunting clubs. So private clubs each have a cabin that they share uh, amongst the club members and then a certain amount of acreage that they have the uh, exclusive right to hunt on. So during hunting season, the public cannot go on that portion of the property. Uh, when it isn't hunting season, the public can go on that portion of the property. But within this conservation easement, some of the land can only be harvested in the winter months because of the steepness of the terrain. Uh, some of the land can only have a certain amount of a certain intensity of timber harvesting along riparian corridors, river corridors, and stream corridors. So the easement defines some of these public restrictions or public uses of the property. So the entire property is subject to this conservation easement. Uh, it can only be sold in a total of six pieces. 
So 250,000 acres will be sold in, you know, the, the smallest piece I think is 25,000 acres. The biggest piece is 60,000 acres. So if we go to sell that property, it can't be cut up even for non-development reasons into smaller pieces than those six pieces. And then uh, it has about 305 miles of common boundary with the Adirondack State Park. So it's a bit complicated. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Peter, the, the final primary topic that I want to talk to you about is the carbon offset space. And here we're talking about both compliance carbon markets and voluntary carbon markets. These seem to be a bit different from each other. In one case, you have, say, like a cap and trade program like in California and regu regulated bodies there have rights to emit a certain amount of greenhouse gases built into the program is this idea that instead of lowering their emissions, they can pay for those emissions to be offset by sequestration somewhere else. Yep. Thus the term carbon offset. That occurs within the context of a public policy, but there's this burgeoning space of it's voluntary, essentially. So Microsoft or some other organization will say, we pledge to become carbon neutral or get to net zero. And we're going to do that by paying for largely forest-based carbon offset projects that help sequester carbon, kind of reverse the greenhouse gas uh, balance. And so I'd love to hear about how your work interfaces with that space and how you and Lime Timber think about, you know, how you want to move forward with that in the future. I'm aware that your CEO had written a, an article um, about that. That was my imp my impression was that it's somewhat critical of of uh, the role that carbon offsets can play. I'm also aware that the the discourse about this, Peter, from my perspective, it does feel it's hard to find a lot of literature that says, well, on the one hand, it's pretty good. And on the other hand, there's these concerns. It feels like it's most of what you read is kind of, well, it's great or no, it's totally terrible. So I'm kind of interested on your take and what what are the good and the bad? Yeah, we haven't written all that much, but we've been, uh, Jim Hortigan, our CEO has, has uh, written a bit and he's been interviewed by a variety of publications. We have, only been active in what you described correctly as the compliance market, the regulated market in California. I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, California legislature passed AB 32, which created the greenhouse gas uh, trading scheme in California. So regulated emitters um, uh, every five years have to reduce their emissions and a tiny amount of that reduction can be achieved through the purchase of offsets. So uh, it was 6%, it's now 4%. So if you have to reduce by 100 tons, uh, you can buy four tons of offsets and only reduce by 96 tons. Which is worth emphasizing, it seems to me, because I feel like when we hear about offsets and the concerns, I'll say I was surprised that it was that that low a number. Uh, it's tiny. <laughs> From yeah. you know, If you think about uh, the public policy uh, kind of levers the the and I agree with this 100%. We just we need to stop emitting, and I think that the offset market, the ability to use uh, uh, to meet a fraction of your 
emission reductions through offsets is really a transition mechanism. Um, mm. I'm going to guess that sometime in the next 20 years, offsets will disappear in the compliance market in California um, because technology will be able to achieve these at a cost that makes sense for the emitters and they can do 100% of their reduction on their own. That said, uh, we have six uh, California compliant carbon offset projects on land in uh, Wisconsin, Tennessee, Alabama, and West Virginia. Um, some of these we did. We also did um, a project in Maine in partnership with Down East Lakes Land Trust a number of years ago where the carbon revenues from land they own, as well as the carbon revenues from a conservation investment we did together were used to purchase that property as a community forest by that, that land trust in, uh, in Down East Maine. Uh, so we are pretty uh, experienced and familiar. Uh, we didn't do the first California compliant project, but I think we might've done a second or third. So we've first project was 2009 in Tennessee. And we have stayed away from the voluntary market uh, for three reasons. One is the price difference per ton of uh, greenhouse of, of CO2 sequestered is, is very different between the regulated market and the voluntary market. Uh, it's basically about half of what the regulated market would pay. So the voluntary market is, is less um, remuneration or income for lime timber. Second, uh, the protocols are not as rigorous. Uh, so whether it's the American Carbon Registry or VERA, those are the two protocols that work in the U.S. Um, they both require 40-year enrollments versus the California Protocol uh, for compliance projects, which require a 100-year enrollment. Second, uh, there is more wiggle room or creativity in those protocols than the California Protocol with respect to defining the baseline, meaning what would a landowner be doing anyway and with the imposition of the carbon project, how much of that would be reduced by the uh, requirements of the carbon project. And, and this is additionality. Exactly. And so there's, I think that the three big worrisome issues for us and for a lot of the people who are digging into the voluntary market are additionality, permanence, meaning shorter term than 100 years or perpetuity, uh, and some missteps by project developers in the voluntary space, meaning who's actually doing carbon projects. So there have been examples where land trusts who own preserves, land that was never going to be managed for timber production, would sell carbon over those preserves. So wasn't that already protected? Wasn't Was there going to be any additional CO2 uh, sequestered in that preserve by selling their carbon credit? No. I don't think anybody's doing that anymore, but five, six, seven years ago, a number of land trusts had done that. The Nature Conservancy was a partner in some of those projects. Um, I think they've all reformed their behavior or changed their behavior. They wouldn't do it in, in the future, but that kind of uh, left a black mark on some of those uh, earlier voluntary carbon market transactions. So um, right now we are sitting on the sideline uh, with respect to carbon, we tend to want to do conservation easements, working forest conservation easements, and maybe embed carbon in the future once we've done the easement. But we'd rather spend the 
take time. Uh, both of these are complicated things to do. Uh, we'd rather spend the time doing conservation easements than doing carbon. Once we do a conservation easement, uh, we then might pursue carbon. The other thing that happened in the compliance market is 50% of the credits have to be domiciled or with a direct ecological benefit for the state of California. So what used to be a whole country, including the province of Quebec, so two parts of two countries could participate in the California market. Uh, now 50% of the credits that have to be purchased by regulated emitters have to either come from within the boundaries of California or from adjacent lands where there's a credible ecological connection. So a watershed, an example would be part of the watershed is in Oregon, the balance of the watershed is in California, those would qualify uh, for that 50% requirement. But if it's in Tennessee, um, I'm pretty sure there's no way it would ever qualify for that 50%. That's interesting. I didn't know that, Peter. Do you have a sense of what the motivation for that policy shift was? Yeah, I think uh, two things. One is there is there's a whole bunch of co-benefits. Uh, I was being a little negative maybe about carbon, but there's a whole bunch of co-benefits. So this, the property that is going to be uh, enrolled in a carbon project for 100 years probably doesn't have to worry too much about subdivisions, uh, probably doesn't have to worry too much about habitat fragmentation. There's no requirement for public access, but, but maybe that could be something that that landowner would be more open to if their property is enrolled in a carbon project for 100 years. So they, I think that the legislature really wanted to see more so-called close-to-home benefits for these carbon projects. That makes sense. You mentioned kind of what Lime Timber is doing now with respect to carbon. Are there other developments that you see coming in the next five to 10 years for well, for multiple things, for yourself, for Lime Timber, for this larger conservation and forest management space, things you're hoping that will happen, things you expect to happen that you think we should be talking about? Uh, well, it started a while ago, like 10 or 11 years ago, but we have become, uh, it's a little bit, we talked about the divestiture from the paper companies. We are uh, been going back to the future a little bit uh, within Lime Timber in that we are becoming a little more vertical in our investments. So we now own two sawmills in Pennsylvania. We mm -hmm. own log marketing businesses. We uh, own the operating businesses that manage our land. They're actually owned directly by our fund uh, funds, so there's no conflict. But that's uh, a way to begin to build kind of some of those social and local connections that we saw disappearing from the disaggregation of land from manufacturing over the previous 20 or 30 years. It's also been profitable for Lime Timber to do that. So that's one change. Uh, the other change is eventually I have to stop working. So that, that will happen. But I do keep myself busy with uh, the Conservation Finance Network, the International Land Conservation Network. So part of my role as sort of a grandfather in this movement is making sure uh, NGOs that are interested in this space, they may be civil society organizations that I'm going to introduce you to in northern Spain, in Catalonia, so you can go meet them, um, or, or things like land trusts in the U.S., but there are now 110 countries around the globe that have NGOs that are sort of like conservation land trusts, and see how I can support, help, mentor some of those to get involved in 
the working lands landscape issue. One additional question occurs to me now, Peter, is how representative versus unusual do you think lime timber is in this space? We're unusual. How so? We used to be more unusual, so. Okay. I mean, probably the best description is uh, most of the other timber investment management organizations thought we were absolutely crazy uh, 25 or 30 years ago by doing these working forest conservation easements. Because they say, well, you know, you're giving up the optionality of, of selling land for higher and better uses. We said, okay, we know that, but we're getting paid, you know, in year two or year three or year four in the life of an investment for the wholesale value of our real estate. Isn't that a good thing? Uh, so uh, what has, what was maybe viewed as crazy or um, unconventional has become more and more convention by TMOs, uh, of, you know, particularly in the last five years. Uh, many of them have investors that care about ESG or, or particularly they have European-based investors that care about ESG, uh, that care about climate. Uh, both mitigation and adaptation and a working forest conservation easement is part of nature-based climate solutions. So I think, you know, I see the world of chemos uh, being more connected to conservation going forward uh, than they have been in the past. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.